You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? On October 23rd, Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke sat down with the Washington Post Live to lay out his vision for America as he continues his fight to win the Democratic nomination. O'Rourke discussed why he's made gun control the centerpiece of his campaign and his strategy to break into the top tier of this crowded field. Let's listen. Thank you so much for being here and taking the time. Very you got some coffee, you're right? I've got some coffee, and um, I, I um, just got to tell you all, I'm very grateful to be here. Um, grateful to you for taking the time to interview me, and deeply apologize for, for being late and keeping you all waiting. Apology uh, accepted. We had a yeah. nice conversation, Good. talked a little bit about your yeah. campaign. Yeah. So every election, Congressman, is about a question perhaps the country wants answered. Uh, you think about the candidates who win, they're answering a core question facing this country. What are you the answer to? Which question does your campaign answer? We face the greatest set of challenges that this country, and, and I would argue this planet, uh, has ever known. The fact that we are cooking Earth beyond our ability to sustain human life or life for that matter. Um, in this country, you have 10 million living in the shadows in constant fear, their children not knowing if their parents who've dropped them off at school this morning here in DC or in my hometown of El Paso, Texas, will be there at the end of the day to pick them up or whether they will be detained or deported back to a country that child has never known, whose language they do not speak. You've got folks in America who are working three or four jobs just to make ends meet, though we are the world's greatest economy. Uh, and you have some of the wealthiest people on planet Earth living in, in America today. You have folks with diabetes um, or the flu or curable cancers dying of those diseases, though we spend more on health care than any other country on, on the face of the planet. Um, so to each of these challenges, any one of them extraordinary in its scope and its scale and its difficulty to overcome, to take them all at the same time, at a moment that America has never been more divided or more polarized, where we have a, a president who drives us further apart every single day based on a fabricated fear that he tries to instill about the differences between us, uh, you know, according to how you pray or how I love or where we are from, at this moment uh, of maximum peril, uh, I think we can produce this country's maximum potential and promise and greatness. But that needs all of us to do all that we can. It but can't why be, you? It can't be half measures, it can't be half steps, and it cannot be half the country. My entire life, Starting as a small business owner in El Paso more than 20 years ago, I brought people in to shared success. As a city council member, every single week for six years, I held a town hall meeting like this one, and I was on time for all of them. Uh, where We're going to have to fact check that. <laughs> where uh, anyone uh, could and did come out to hold me accountable or offer an idea or work with me on a common solution to a common challenge for the common good. As a member of Congress, as you know, 
every single one of the six years I served in the House of Representatives, I was in the minority, but worked to pass and get signed into law legislation to improve uh, mental health care access for veterans or to protect public lands or to work on issues of the U.S.-Mexico border or our bilateral relationship with that country. And in Texas, last year, a state that before 2018 ranked 50th in the country in voter turnout. Not because we love our democracy less than you do in Virginia or Maryland, but because we were drawn that way based on race and ethnicity, people drawn out of a congressional district, diminishing the power of their vote or the likelihood that we would hear their voice. I went to every single one of those counties, brought everyone in at the end of the day, won more votes than any Democrat had before, won independence for the first time in decades. Nearly half a million Republicans voted for a Republican for governor and voted for me for U.S. Senate on one of the most progressive platforms that Texas had ever seen. So I'm making the case, Robert, that I'm able to bring people in to bridge the divides of race or ethnicity or gender or, or any difference, including partisan or geographic, to ensure that we come together to face this set of challenges. And by the way, I think it's the only path that allows us to defeat Donald Trump in a convincing, clear way, 38 electoral college votes in Texas. Not only does that put him away without question, I think it forever changes the electoral landscape in the United States of America. So the way that I've campaigned, the way that I've served, the way that I'm running this race right now, it allows us to win this election. It allows us to bring this country together in common cause to do the common good. But why have you struggled, Congressman, to break through with that message about being a problem solver? So many headlines about your campaign and criticisms from your rivals is that you're pulling the party too far to the left on guns. You're, you're cast as someone of the left. But you just described yourself as someone who's of generational change about being a problem solver. Why isn't that part of your pitch breaking through? Help me out. Um, uh, so, look, I, I, um, I'm running for Congress in, in El Paso in 2012. I'm knocking on doors. Um, veteran, this is in January of 2012, answers the door. And I give him my pitch, and he says, you know, if you really want to help me, I just got off the phone with the VA trying to make a mental health care appointment for my PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder. And they told me to call back next year. Um, all their mental health care appointments have been filled for the year. I think he's pulling my leg or trying to make a point, or this is an ornery old Vietnam era veteran. Um, it turns out that El Paso had the worst wait times to see a mental health care provider at the VA in the United States of America. And care delayed became care denied and led to an epidemic of veteran suicide in El Paso and, and across the country. Hearing that, it's not sensational, doesn't make headlines. I made addressing access to mental health care for veterans the number one issue, not just in that campaign. And we ended up defeating uh, an 18-year incumbent who outspent us five to one. But I made it my number one issue when I got to Congress. And we turned around the VA in El Paso, Texas. And then we used what we learned there to author legislation, get it passed in a Republican-controlled Congress, and signed into law by the one man with whom I agree on almost nothing. Donald Trump, but we found enough common ground to be able to address this issue. So you, you asked me the question, I share a story to help make the case that none of these issues, uh, access to mental health care for veterans, reducing gun violence in America, confronting climate change before it's too late, can be fixed on the political spectrum between right 
and left. These are just fundamental American concerns, must be met with fundamental American values, and part of that is bringing people together to meet these challenges in common. So uh, I don't know why that message uh, is not getting out well, better, but, it, but it's also, we're, we're still, you know, 100 days plus out from that some is, of these How do you close? How do you close between now and Iowa? On the ground. Um, having these conversations in town hall meetings, I, I went back to my time on the, the El Paso City Council or, or knocking door to door in 2012. There's nothing so powerful as the human to human, eyeball to eyeball connection that we can make, especially in a divided era or an age where we are consumed by digital devices. To be able to do that is, is to be able to break through and to have a raw, honest conversation about the things that matter most in any election that I've participated in, any race I've run, that's been fundamental to our chances of success. And so um, that's, that's how we close this, is on the ground uh, with those people in those states who will make these early decisions. It give us a chance to come through to Super Tuesday in Texas and California, where, where I really think we have a strong competitive advantage. You brought up how you want to work in a bipartisan way. I was at the Capitol yesterday just sharing some stories earlier about that walk through the Capitol. I asked some Republicans about you. They say, well, Congressman O'Rourke has compared Trump rallies to Nuremberg in Nazi Germany. You've used some pretty tough language about President Trump and his supporters. So if you're President of the United States, how do you actually bring Republicans to your side on different issues if you've used that kind of language? I don't think that speaking the truth and calling things by their right names is in any way disqualifying in being able to do work going forward. I, I think sooner rather than later, um, a majority of Americans, including Republicans, are going to see Trump for who he is and this administration for, for what it's done. The criminality, the corruption that runs rife through the Trump administration, and, and the basic breaking of the foundation of American success, this genius that we are a people of the planet over who have found a home here and are trying to live up to the ideals, though never fully realized that we are all created equal and will be treated equal under law. For this president to describe some based on their ethnicity as rapists and criminals, to ask four women of color duly elected by their constituents to the U.S. Congress to go back to their home country, to try to ban all people of one religion, from the shores of a country that is comprised of people from every tradition of faith, every walk of life, the planet over. Outside of the Third Reich, give me another example of a Western leader who has called one people of one faith inherently defective or dangerous or disqualified from being successful in that country. To threaten civil war, to call members of Congress treasonous, to remind us what we used to do to spies in the old day, which is death, um, to kill them uh, for um, committing treason in this country. If we just accept that and normalize that and say, you know what, uh, I don't know that he really knows what he's talking about, or I, I want to make sure that we don't um, break our ability to work with Republicans, then every single one of us is complicit in exactly what is going to follow. And, and there is only one destination this path will take us on. And if we do not wake ourselves up to the danger that we face, then, then this country will die in its sleep. I'm convinced of it. So what this do you mean, moment- wait, What do you mean by that, die in its sleep? You, you ask yourself, when, when you look at, at the history of the Third Reich, which is the comparison um, that I made that, that you um, raised just now, 
H how did a modern country, uh, well-educated, um, a source of innovation and ingenuity and, and moral leadership uh, in, in the world descend in, into that level of barbarity, um, producing a shame that, that lives with every single German to this day. Um, you look at everything that I just enumerated, and, and we could go into far greater detail about what Tr President Trump has said and has done. The send her back chanting at that rally in, in North Carolina, chilling to my bones. So are we in a 1930s moment? In, in Florida, in May of this year, you know, the president who's warned about the infestation, the invasion, the predators, the animals, dehumanizing language to talk about humans who he's placed in cages. We've lost the lives of seven children in our custody and care. He's telling that rally in Florida, what are we gonna do about these people who are coming here? And, and someone yells out, shoot them. And that crowd roars in laughter and applause. And the president with that shit-eating smirk on his face smiles and laughs in consent, giving the green light to that killer in Allen, Texas, who drove 600 miles to El Paso with an AK-47, who said that he was gonna stop the invasion, that he'd been warned about by the President of the United States, that he didn't wanna be replaced as a white man in the United States of America. And when people in Charlottesville, Virginia, were talking about Jews, you will not replace us, President Trump said they are very fine people. If we fail to connect the dots and draw the conclusion, then we're gonna die in our sleep as a country. We will lose this democracy. We will lose the genius of America, our ability to non-violently resolve our differences and bring people from the planet over into our shared success right here in this country. So, so this is a make or break moment for the United States of America. Has your party, has your party failed to understand that urgency, the urgency you describe? You, we, as a country, I... No, but your party, you're running for the Democratic nomination. You're on the stage with these folks. We, as a country, have failed thus far, but I believe in America, and I believe in my fellow Americans, Democrats, independents, Republicans, people who could care less about party politics alike. Um, at this moment of truth, as we have done so many times previous, though it took us a while to get here, though this democratic process is frustratingly slow, uh, I'm convinced that we're going to see the truth and at this decisive defining moment, do the right thing. And there are some encouraging signs. Um, we saw a, a career diplomat, uh, a former service Ambassador member Taylor. in Vietnam, Ambassador Taylor, Yesterday. give um, incredibly thoughtful and particularly damning testimony that helps all Americans come to the same page of facts to do the right thing for this country. We've seen the House of Representatives begin to move forward in an impeachment inquiry, uh, a deliberate, sober process. Um, you know, for, for my concerns that I just stated, um, uh, I, I just want to make sure that we don't lose this opportunity to bring the facts to the Senate and allow those senators not only to see them, but to listen to their constituents, who I believe are gonna provide the public pressure form the political will to guarantee that they do the right thing, not for their party, not for their president, not for their own prospects in the next re-election, but for this great country. And, and I believe in America, I think we're gonna come through. What do you make of the president's comment yesterday comparing the impeachment process to lynching? It just so happens that um, within the last week, I was in Montgomery, Alabama, um, and I got to meet with my all-time hero, 
in life. I think one of the greatest living human beings, Brian Stevenson, if you have not read Just Mercy, please do. But um, through his work at the Equal Justice Initiative, and then this Memorial to Peace and Justice, which has the name of every single person in America, every African American who's been lynched because she or he was a person of color between 1877 and 1955, when we use terror in this country to keep people down through lynchings, through burnings, through drownings, through, through beatings, um, to be in that memorial, to listen to Brian Stevenson, to understand our history, and then to have the most privileged, the most powerful white man on the face of the planet invoke that same word to describe what is happening to him is one of the most obscene things that I've heard in American life in my lifetime. Um, and, it, and it goes to show the extent to which he will lie, uh, the extent to which he will commit these obscenities, and the extent to which his administration and his presidency is unjust on, on every single level that matters. So um, I, I think if, if you had not been convinced uh, of how unfit he is to lead this country, uh, his invocation of lynching to describe what is happening to him in a fair, deliberate, democratic process, that should convince you beyond the shadow of a doubt. Last night, CNN reported that in 1998, Vice President Biden called the Clinton impeachment process a, quote, partisan lynching. He then apologized last night, said he's, quote, sorry about that, and said President Trump, on the other hand, continues to stoke racial divides. Do you accept Vice President Biden's apology? I do. It was the wrong thing for him to say 21 years ago. Uh, he's apologized for, for saying it, uh, but nothing about the fact that he did this um, 21 years ago makes what the president is doing now Okay, and I think uh, Vice President Biden was, was right to apologize and right to condemn President Trump for what he's doing. You've in the past said it's not time for the Democrats to go to the past. Do you have any concern about Vice President Biden's history on race on issues like busing? No, I, I don't, just, just to answer it in, in a word. I really do think we need to be focused on the future. Uh, what any of us who contend for the Democratic nomination will do to address foundational, systemic, structural racism in America that is not just borne out in a criminal justice system, although it is terrible there, but in healthcare, where women of color are three times as likely to be victims of this maternal mortality crisis that we see in education, where a five-year-old child in a kindergarten classroom in Texas is five times as likely to be disciplined or suspended or expelled. In our democracy, I mentioned being 50th in the country in voter turnout. Not by accident, that's racial gerrymandering at work so many years after the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So it is every facet of American life. We, we need to, the problem is, is so significant, so structural, we need to be fiercely focused on addressing it on the future, not going back 20, 30, 40 years. Let's say you're elected president of the United States and you, you implement your gun buyback program that you've proposed. You've also just described this country as an, a tinderbox of sorts, facing a Third Reich atmosphere. How do you actually implement that gun buyback program and deal with issues of civil unrest? Who, who, buy, who takes the guns? Is it local police, federal officials? How does this work if you're sitting in the Oval Office? Yeah. As with so many things we've discussed, my, my answer begins uh, with a belief in America and my fellow Americans, regardless of the differences between us. In, in this case, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, gun owner, non-gun owner, or if you're a gun owner, 
whether you own one of these AR-15s or AK-47s, which I hope we all understand, uh, are not like a shotgun or a rifle or a handgun. Th these were weapons specifically designed for use on a battlefield, engineered and sold to the militaries of the world because they are devastatingly effective at killing people efficiently in as great a number as possible. El Paso, Texas, 22 killed in under three minutes. When the Second Amendment was written, ratified, and adopted, it took you three minutes to reload your musket. Founding fathers, framers of our Constitution, could not have envisioned this kind of carnage. In Dayton, Ohio, uh, under 40 seconds, nine people are killed, again, by one of these military-style weapons. And I, I want to say that, Robert, because I want to make clear the distinction between the guns we use to hunt and for self-defense and the weapons that we use but This idea that the belief, in your belief in America only takes you so far. Your president, how do you actually make it happen if people don't want to give up their guns? You pass a law. Um, that law is debated through our fellow Americans' representatives in the House and in the Senate. I signed that law as President of the United States, and we then expect our fellow Americans to follow the law. Those, those 16 million AR-15s, AK-47s, must be turned in. You asked who would administer the program. Uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, ATF, would administer it. We would work with local law enforcement, city, uh, uh, county, and, and state. Uh, and, and to your question of whether we would go and take or confiscate or go door to door, the, the answer is no. Um, we depend on our fellow Americans turning those guns in. If someone is found with an AR-15 or an AK-47, you know, in their car or in their home when law enforcement is there for some other purpose, if someone is bringing that AR-15 or AK-47 out in public to, to flagrantly violate the law, of course there are going to be consequences, and of course that weapon will be taken from that person. Um, but How just as with any law, we expect our fellow Americans to follow the law. Well, we saw with segregation in the 1960s, the federal government often, when states would not comply with federal law, would have to send in federal officials to make sure the law was enforced. Would ATF be going into different states that chose not to comply? No. Uh, be, no. no. Uh, then doesn't federal law need to be enforced? It sure does. But, but I expect at the end of um, that process through which we debate and work on that legislation, which by necessity will involve the entire country. Um, we will come to a conclusion as Americans that the lives of our fellow Americans, including those kids of ours who are beginning to lose any hope that we are gonna do anything at all to reduce gun violence, that those lives are far more important than our fear that some Americans are not going to follow the law or our fear that the NRA is going to exact a toll in the next elections or our fear of the political action committees or the lobbies um, or the gun industry itself. Th the fear that I have is coming back to El Paso after meeting so many of these families who've lost a loved one and have asked me, have, have made me promise that I'm going to do something about it. My fear is, is coming back to their judgment, having failed to do something about this. I fear those kids who are counting on us right now who want to see us do the right thing even if it is politically difficult to do while we still have time to do it that, that's what compels me uh, more than any fear that we're going to have difficulty in implementing the law or passing the law or working out some of the jurisdictional questions america is going to be able to figure this out we just have to decide what's most important to us in this country and in our lives a lot of people would fight it though congressman it. a lot of people would fight that even if Absolutely. it was done 
in a congressional way. You'd have states that would say, no thanks. T tell me anything significant in American history that we've done that didn't require a fight, that wasn't difficult, that at the outset people said, this is going to be absolutely impossible. And it was never, frankly, a president or a member of Congress or those in elected office who at the end of the day deserve credit for making that happen. Going back to Montgomery, Alabama, where I just was, or Birmingham that I visited afterwards, 1963, Children's Crusade. Um, thousands of kids walk out of their classrooms as young as 12 years old. 1,200 are arrested on the first day. They go up against police dogs. They go up against fire hoses that peeled the bark off of trees, tore the shirts off their backs. 1,200 kids arrested on that first day. They forced a very difficult conversation. How are you gonna enforce civil rights law? How could we pass that in a white majority country? How could we get past the filibuster? Yet those kids forced the conscience of this country. The rest of America was listening, though my fellow Texan LBJ gets a lot of the credit for signing the Civil Rights Act into law in 1964. Those kids in Birmingham, those freedom riders through the Deep South, John Lewis across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, they forced the issue. And today, moms demand action, march for our lives. Those who are coming to town halls and getting in my face to ask me about this issue, they're gonna be the ones who deserve the credit when we finally sign this into law answer all the legitimate concerns and objections that you're raising with the force of will of the American people. I know we can do it. You speak with such urgency about guns. Did you not appreciate when Mayor Buttigieg said, quote, I don't need lessons from you on courage, political or personal at the debate when you had an exchange on guns? Did you think that was an unfair comment from the mayor? I don't think it's an unfair comment. I think it's a nice debate line. Um, I think, um, <laughs> What, what we're talking about right now, though, is political leadership and, and political courage. And to trim your sails based on what you think is politically possible in the moment, which is essentially what, what Mayor Buttigieg is, is doing, saying, look, we're, we're very close to, to getting there on universal background checks and, and a couple of other measures that will improve um, you know, gun safety in America. And to allow that to stop us from going the distance, or at least describing what it is we want to achieve at the end of the day. Look, I'll pick up a victory anywhere I can get it, on background checks, on extreme risk protection orders, on ending the sale of weapons of war, licensing and registration. But I do think we have a responsibility when we run for the highest office in the land to describe the ultimate goal and the path that we're gonna take to get there. And when Mayor Pete described pursuing a mandatory buyback of weapons of war as a shiny object. Um, I don't know what it means to me as a candidate, but to those families who've lost someone to an AR-15 or an AK-47, to the more than 80% of Hispanics in Texas who, in answer to an Univision poll, say they fear they will be the victims of a mass terror attack like the one that took place in El Paso based on their ethnicity, the country from which they originally came, it's a slap in the face to all of them, and it's a slap in the face to America, a country that should be defined by our ambitions, our aspirations, and our resolve and our imagination, our ability to be able to achieve them. So I don't wanna be limited by polls and consultants and triangulation. That's exactly what got us in this position in the first place. I wanna be bold, I wanna be strong, I wanna see things for what they are, speak honestly about them, and act decisively. I think that's the choice we have right now. You've called on religious institutions to not receive tax exemptions if they don't fully recognize what you called, quote, full civil rights and full human rights. 
what did you mean by that? What will these religious institutions and universities need to recognize to keep their tax-exempt status? First, let me say this. Um, as an El Pasoan, somebody who's a lifelong Catholic, um, I've seen the power of my church, and not just within the four walls of, of St. Patrick, Patrick's Cathedral in El Paso, but beyond that, uh, Annunciation House, this extraordinary Catholic charity that provides shelter to the most vulnerable and the most desperate, these asylum seekers who traveled 2,000 miles to come to this country, who are being treated with such cruelty by the Trump administration. They're literally doing the, the Lord's work by providing shelter and facilitating the reunification of these families who have been separated. I see it in synagogues and mosques and, and other places of worship across this country. And I wanna make clear that, that we should all be able to worship as we see fit, believe in what we believe, congregate as we wish without any interference or fear of government involvement. But the moment that any of us provides any service in the public sphere, um, whether that is higher education or healthcare in a clinic or in a hospital or adoption services, then we are subject to the laws and the values and the constitution of the United States of America. And in that public space, if you deny equal treatment to any one of our fellow Americans based on your race, your gender, your ethnicity, your sexual orientation, or your gender identity, then we have a problem. But what do you mean by equal treatment? Do you mean religious institutions must provide contraceptions, access to abortifacients? What I mean in, in the specific question I was asked in the Human Rights Campaign Town Hall was if those institutions, any nonprofit, anyone who joy, enjoys tax-exempt status denies equal treatment of somebody based on their gender identity or their sexual orientation, what is the response to that in, in the public sphere? So I'll give you an example. In Texas, though we have 30,000 kids in the foster care system, and though Child Protective Services is so underfunded and, and undermanned that you have kids sleeping in CPS offices on the tables or under the desks, by law, though it's not okay, it is legal in Texas, you can be too gay to adopt one of those children under the guise of religious freedom. In Texas, you can be fired for your sexual orientation. In Texas, we debated a bill about scaring parents about children's transgender uh, or, or transgender children entering their kids' uh, bathroom. That kind of fear, um, that kind of disparity in treatment under the law in America, in, in my reading of the Constitution, is, is unconstitutional. We need to clarify that by passing into law the Equality Act, and then we need a president who's going to enforce that and stand up for the equal civil and human rights of every single one of our fellow Americans. So, so that's what I'm talking about at, at the end of the day. In, in any as aspect of public life, in any place of public accommodation, you should have equal treatment under the law. These institutions, though, if your president would turn to you and say, President O'Rourke, what do you mean? What, what exact, how far do we need to go? Is it covering all spouses uh, in same-sex marriages? To what extent with LGBT, uh, LGBTQ rights um, do we need to do? There will be a lot of looming question. questions about how, right. to, how to enforce this idea of tax exemption being revoked. Right. I, I was asked this, this specific question that may, may get to the spirit of, of your question. Um, would would a, a, a president or work seek to remove the tax-exempt status of a church or mosque or synagogue that refused to perform a same-sex marriage? Correct. The, the answer is no. 
um, th that is a, a decision that that religion, that place of worship is, is free to make without interference from the government. I may disagree with that, and I do, uh, personally. I disagree with it as a Catholic in, in, in my church, um, but that's not the government's role to decide or to define. If that same institution, however, is providing a service to the public in the public space, it is then subject to, to our laws. And I, and I think that point needs to be made um, clear. And if we're going to, to truly realize that genius, that promise, that potential of America, um, that we are all created equal, subject to equal treatment under the law, equal opportunity in, in our lives, then, then we've, really got to, we've really got to have a president um, who's gonna vigorously enforce that, stand up for it, and then ensure that there are consequences if we fail to do that. Um, someone from my team pointed out that there's, there's a precedent for this. Um, Bob Jones University uh, in 1983 had its tax-exempt status withdrawn because it did not treat um, white Americans and black Americans uh, equally in that institution. Now, whatever Bob Jones does within the confines of a place of worship, their business, what it does in an institution of higher education um, that's in the public space, that becomes our business as a country, especially if they enjoy tax-exempt status. Let's turn to foreign policy. You're president of the United States. You confront the, issue, the, the uh, situation in Syria. Do you send U.S. troops in to protect the Kurds or not? in 2021? It's a question, I, I, I know what you're asking. Um, it, it's hard to answer it without first describing how we got to this place. The fact that the Kurds for so many years now have not only fought alongside American service members, but in many instances have fought in lieu of American service members, um, essentially ensuring that we don't have to send as many women and men over into harm's way because the Syrian Democratic Forces were willing to fight that battle for us, willing to hold territory, willing to not only apprehend members of ISIS, but to incarcerate them and guard them so they don't pose a threat to our service members on the ground or, or this country should they be able to organize terror attacks from afar. And by turning our backs on the Kurds, by inviting uh, the Turkish army and Erdogan um, to invade northern Syria, um, not only have we dishonored our, our commitment, not only have we, we jeopardized the, the, the place that American service members are in now with their supply lines uh, jeopardized and, and undermined, but we made it less likely that those Kurds, to answer your question, would want us to ally with them going forward or that any group on the ground will see the United States as a reliable, consistent, stable partner. So what the president has done is diminished not just our standing and stature, but our security and our safety but what would you do around the world. It's a really difficult situation because I don't know that we can reinsert ourselves in a place that the Turkish army is right now that the Russian army is right now, that the Syrian forces under Assad are in right now, that ISIS prisoners have been released into right now. I, I, I don't know that you can get all those horses back into the barn again. I, I only know that you can learn the lesson from one of the most grievous mistakes that this country uh, has, has ever made. Um, I, I think the only way I can answer this question prospectively is to say that I would not turn my back 
on allies that we have on the ground, that I would seek to make sure that we maintain an American involvement to the end of a political resolution to challenges that we've been trying to solve militarily for the last almost 30 years. I was a senior in high school, I'm 47 years old now, senior in high school when in 1991, George H.W. Bush announced that we were going to use American force in the country of Iraq. We've been in that country every single year, every single presidential administration since for 28 years counting, 18 years counting now in Afghanistan, but we're also in Syria, Somalia, Libya, Yemen as well. Um, we've got to decide that we're going to use the power of diplomacy, the convening authority that the United States has to peacefully and politically resolve these differences, or otherwise, we're gonna send the next generation of US service members into harm's way. And having allies like the Kurds on the ground in Syria and on the ground in Iraq improve our fortunes as we try to seek a political settlement. Without that help, it's gonna be much harder. Just to be clear, you just said you're gonna work with the Kurds in a political and diplomatic way, but you're not yet ready to make a decision on whether you'd have military involvement moving forward. Yeah, I mean, the specific question you asked me is, would we, would we send U.S. service members back into Manbij and, and these other areas in Syria where we had installations, where we were, we were able to leverage a very small U.S. troop presence to be able to exact a much greater level of commitment from the Syrian Democratic Forces under Kurdish leadership. I don't know that we can go back in time to get to that. You point. raised skepticism about the U.S. footprint abroad. Would you take back U.S. troops from other parts of the world if you were president? Yes, um, not in the way that, that Donald Trump has just done. Um, I, I think there is some, there are some encouraging signs in Afghanistan when we bring the government in Kabul, um, the Taliban, other stakeholders, including members of civil society, together to try to resolve, again, politically, an issue that the alternative is to resolve militarily. Um, and that's going to produce the same stalemate that we've seen for the last 18 years plus. We see some encouraging signs from the progress the Obama administration was able to make in Iran. Without invading yet another Middle Eastern country, without firing a shot, without deploying additional service members and putting their lives on the line in that country, we were able to stop them from their progress on developing a nuclear weapon, and it could have been the predicate, the first step in beginning to stop them from doing some other things that we don't want them to do. Funding terrorist organizations throughout the Middle East, their involvement in the civil war in Yemen, their development on ballistic missile technology. But now withdrawing ourselves from the table and withdrawing the United States from that agreement, it is more, not less likely, that they're gonna develop a nuclear weapon. And we now have no leverage and no coalition with which to work to bring Iran to their senses on these other serious concerns that we have with them. So I think we have two contrasting alternatives in the Obama administration and the Trump administration. And we were far safer at the end of the previous one than we are now in this one. So I think diplomacy, the power of inspiration, as General Mattis calls it, instead of the power of intimidation, and making sure that we give peaceful political alternatives a chance to succeed. Otherwise, we're going to continue to commit men and women to put their lives on the line, to lose their lives, and to take lives in the name of this country. And I know that we can find a better path than that one. If you were president, would you support the protesters in Hong Kong or not? Yes. It really says something right now when the uh, most inspiring representatives of democracy at a time that the open question in the world is 
is the future a democratic or an autocratic one, are not here in the United States, but in Hong Kong. And you have the leader of the free world, ostensibly, in the president of the United States, not embracing those protesters or our fellow democracies, but the thugs and strongmen and dictators the planet over. And it's not just Vladimir Putin, but that should be bad enough. It's not just Erdogan, it's al-Sisi in, in Egypt, it's Duterte in the Philippines, it's Mohammed bin Salman in uh, Saudi Arabia, who's able to kill a journalist based in the United States, working with the Washington Post with complete impunity. And the President of the United States literally says this, you know what, they buy a lot of weapons from the United States, so that's cause enough for us to be able to turn a blind eye and effectively to turn our back on the situation. That same country with US assistance bombing Yemen into the last century and into the next great humanitarian crisis. That's what the United States right now stands for around the world. So incumbent upon all of us, absent any leadership from this president and this White House, to be with those pro protesters in Hong Kong and unequivocally send the signal that we stand with them, that we're proud of them, and everywhere that you have anyone standing up for their rights, their freedom, their democracy, whether it's the Uyghurs in another part uh, of China, the Rohingya in, in Myanmar. Should China pay a price for how they treat Muslims in their country? Absolutely. What price? Uh, human rights, um, the civil rights of, of our fellow human beings around the world should always be something that's on the table in any negotiation that the United States enters into with any other country. Now, now whether ostensibly the issue is security or whether it is trade or whether it is some other global challenge that we want to meet together, human rights is a fundamental value and concern of the United States. And so, yes, um, that should be on the table with China. And yes, that should be on the table with Saudi Arabia. And yes, that should be on the table with Turkey uh, or with Egypt or any other country with whom we do business or with whom we work around the world. You've talked often about climate change. Should tax increases be on the table to help pay for the overhaul you've articulated in the U.S. economy and infrastructure? Yes, for the wealthiest. Yes, for corporations. No, for any American family earning $250,000 or less. My commitment to the American people is that if you are in the middle class or if you're working your way into the middle class, you will either see a tax decrease or you will not see a tax increase under my administration. But we will ask the wealthiest to pay their fair share. We will take will they a pay corporate- Will an, an asset tax? There, there would be a wealth tax, yes. There would be an increase in the corporate tax rate, which dropped from 35% to 21% under the Trump administration. We take it back up to 28%, generating hundreds of billions of dollars over the next 10 years. We would tax returns on capital at the same rate that we, we tax ordinary wage income in America, generates hundreds of billions of dollars uh, over the next 10 years. We would make sure to ensure the solvency of Social Security, guarantee that there is a, a better paid benefit uh, to those who worked by paying into Social Security by lifting the arbitrary cap on income that is taxed for Social Security purposes. I think it's at $132,000 right now. The next uh, $100,000, the next million, the next billion dollars that you make, tax to make sure um, that we guarantee that this country uh, is able to make its, its commitments. And yes, um, we see climate not only as the greatest existential threat, but perhaps the greatest opportunity for this country to reveal its true purpose and promise. And that means engaging every single penny of a 19.4 
trillion dollar economy, to ensure that we fully free ourselves from a dependence on fossil fuels, embrace renewable energy technology, and the high skill, high wage, high value jobs and capital investment that comes along with that. Some country's gonna figure this out. Much rather it be the United States than it be China. So you asked about the cost to pay for it. I also wanna make the case that there's a, a really great return, both moral and financial to the United States if we take the lead on this. Congressman, we only have a few minutes left, so let's call this the lightning round, so shorter answers if possible. Gotcha. You got it. The New York Times and Washington Post have both reported that there's a lot of talk among donors about late entries into this race, whether it's Mayor Bloomberg or Secretary Clinton. Do you take those reports seriously? No. <laughs> lightning round. <laughs> Fair. Uh, universal basic income, Andrew Yang was here on Monday. Is that the U.S. future or not? It's not. Uh, when I listen to people, they don't want a handout. Uh, they don't want a job guarantee. They, they want a chance. They want their child to have a world-class public school education. They want that same child to be able to afford to go to college or afford to join a union and enter an apprenticeship and learn a skill or a trade that not only allows them to command a living wage, but the purpose and function and dignity that's missing from the lives of too many of our fellow Americans. Um, th there is so much opportunity to make more of this economy for more of our fellow Americans. We don't need a universal basic income to do that. Congresswoman Gabbard, unfairly targeted by top Democrats or not? Ask me a more specific question. She's been uh, criticized about her position on Syria, her criticism of uh, her, 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 her visit to visit with Assad in Syria. I, oh, all, all that's fair. I mean, our, our uh, past record as people in positions of public trust, open to scrutiny, to attack. She's also to, been to called debate. as an ally of Russia. That I don't Secretary understand. Secretary Clinton made that allusion. I, that I don't understand. And, and I'm not seeing the, the basis for that allegation. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, any, any vote you've taken, any visit that you've made, anything that you've said, it's part of the public record and, and, and fair game. Um, but, but any allegation as serious as being an asset or working for a, a foreign power better uh, have been substantiated or should be left unsaid. Senator Cornyn of Texas, will he win next year or be defeated? He will be defeated. Who's going to be the Democratic nominee in your view? I don't know. Um, th there are an extraordinary um, cast of candidates from Christina Sinsun Ramirez, MJ Hager, a, a combat veteran, Amanda Edwards, Royce West, Chris Bell, and that's just five of a field of, of eight or nine. And there's no uh, O'Rourke at all. There's no O'Rourke at all, except in O'Rourke who is the Democratic nominee for president and who can not only de deliver, um, not only deliver 38 electoral college votes in Texas, but can help that Democratic nominee against Cornyn to win their race, help more Democratic nominees for congressional seats win their race, help to flip the House of Representatives in the state of Texas in an important redistricting year. And as we saw in 2018, where 17 African-American women won judicial races in Harris County, make sure that Texans in offices of public trust look more like Texas in general. And if you're not the nominee, are you open to serving on the ticket? I'm gonna serve my country to my highest capacity do everything I can that at this defining, decisive moment of truth, America comes through. So that's a yes. You're open to it. I'm going to do whatever it takes for my country. Yeah.
Let's thank Congressman O'Rourke of Texas for being with us thank from you El Paso, very much. Texas. We really appreciate your time for joining us at this Post Live series, the 2020 Candidate Series. We'll continue in the coming weeks. We're asking all these candidates to sit down for in-depth interviews. Really appreciate you joining us on the live stream and here in the room this morning. Congressman O'Rourke, thank you very much. That's us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate really appreciate it. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Bank of America. What would you like the power to do?